Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and let's turn back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3 today. We want to take another step in our study of this amazing book today. The past three weeks we have been studying and wrestling hard with some vitally important and very foundational ideas that are found in the opening chapters of this very first book of Scripture. So we've been noting the last few weeks everything that we've been studying here is rooted in the fact that mankind was made in the image of God. And so the last three weeks we looked at three key truths. Three weeks ago we wrestled with the subject of human sex and gender. Two weeks ago, we wrestled with the subject of biblical marriage, and then last week, we moved on and we dug more deeply into the subject of human sexuality, all found there in chapter number two, where the foundation for Christian thinking on these matters is laid. I don't want to go back and re-preach everything we've looked at the last three weeks, but I will say that if you have not been able to be here or you have missed the material that we've covered over the past several weeks, I would encourage you to go back and get caught up on that. It is, it is vitally important that we be thinking right as Christians, truly as Christians in this day. Um, we've noted along the way that we live in a day and <clears throat> in a world that is preaching lies to us at every turn and really in every venue. We need to be equipped with truth to respond to this and to walk rightly in these days. If ever there was a time that we need to get back to biblical basics and plant our feet on the truth of God's Word, it is now. And we want to make sure that we as a church are being equipped to do just that. So I encourage you, if you haven't gotten a hold of that material, it's available now. It's been available for the last few weeks. Each week we just keep putting it up online for you. I'd encourage you to go back and get a handle on those things as it is foundational to things we'll continue to study through the book of Genesis. You know, friends, the fact of the matter is, in light of what we just said, we live in a world in a time where the enemy's lies are really the doctrine of the day. I mean, the enemy is, is naming the terms, is, is setting the agenda in so many ways in our world, and this is how the Bible has told us it will be. <clears throat> Quite astoundingly, he has not had to change his tactics since the beginning. He keeps telling the same lies, and people keep buying them hook, line, and sinker. In fact, it's interesting to me that the woes that were penned by the prophet Isaiah way back in his day seem very fitting in our day, as fitting as they've ever been. In Isaiah chapter 5, we read, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in drinking strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. I don't know about you, but it seems like those woes could have been written today. They're that fitting to the world in which we live. So you saw at the end of our sermon last week, God turns a people over to themselves when they reject the knowledge of Him. 
Three times in Romans chapter 1, we read that language where we read in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason... Second time, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men did the same, he tells us in verse 27. Verse 28, he adds a third time, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. The text of Scripture is plain, that when men and women reject the knowledge of God, God turns them over to their own desires to be destroyed by themselves. Their choices. This is the way God judges a people. And sadly, this is what we are watching happen all around us in our day. In many ways, it seems like we are living in a kind of society that mirrors the one our Lord destroyed when He sent the flood. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, He described mankind this way, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, the thoughtful student of Scripture notes where that verse is found. Genesis chapter 6. And as to... Think for a moment, it's not that far removed from what we read, God's own description of His creation in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 and verse 31 said, And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. Clearly, something went terribly wrong between the end of Genesis chapter 1 and the beginning of Genesis chapter 6. How else do you get from it? it was all very good to all they could think about was evil? In six chapters of record, we go from it was all perfect to it was all worthy of absolute destruction. How do you get to today? Something happened. And a thoughtful student reads the Word and asks questions. One of them, fitting question, is what happened? What happened between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 6? And friends, this morning we come to the passage of Scripture in which God begins to tell us how what He made very good began to go bad. What happened? Well, I want to begin this morning by just reading the first six verses of chapter 3. Genesis 3, and verses 1 through 6. It's a lot in this chapter. I've actually outlined four sermons, Lord willing, from this chapter. We'll get to them in time. This morning, we just want to look at the first six verses. So let's begin by reading down through it. You follow along. I'll read aloud. Beginning at verse 1 of chapter 3, we read this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, 
Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. There's a lot here. There's a lot more to be seen in the coming verses as well. But in order to make the most of our study this morning, we just want to look at two big ideas from the text. I'm trying to keep it real, pretty simple as we are starting an introduction to some things we've not seen yet in the text. The first thing I want you to consider this morning, first big idea is this. I want you to see the serpent. And then very sec- simply, secondly, I want us to consider his tactics. The serpent and his tactics. So let's take these one at a time and dig into them this morning. Let's consider, first of all, the serpent. The serpent. You know, the first verse of chapter 3 is somewhat striking in light of what we've been studying in the previous chapters. We read in verse number 1 again, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And then it tells us, he said. He said. Uh, You know, nowhere in any previous part of our context has the serpent been introduced. It's not been talked about. It's not another character in the story. In fact, the only persons we have been made aware of thus far in Genesis uh, 1 and 2 are God, Adam, and Eve. These are the persons of the story. No one else is talking. No one else is interacting. There certainly are creatures. There are animals involved. So we know there were at least a couple of serpents that were creeping things in in, in the story that we're told of God's creation, but none of them are talking. None of them are interacting with the creation, the creatures, Adam and Eve. But now in chapter 3, quite Suddenly, in fact, we are introduced to this new, very quickly, ominous character. He's not been in the previous chapters, but now we hear him being introduced and his tactics being spoken about. We start this morning, I think wisely, we would ask a question. What or who was this serpent? There's no real introduction to him. There's simply the statement of him, right? We get chapter 2, God makes Adam and Eve. He gives them to each other in marriage, and there is a good response by them to what God has given. Adam is overwhelmed with the gift of Eve, and now this serpent comes on the scene. What was this? Who was this? Well, the term serpent simply means snake. We know that. But clearly, there was far more going on here than initially meets the eye. It's interesting that the Apostle John may address this question of who the, who the serpent is most plainly of all the biblical writers when he writes in the book of Revelation of all places of the serpent. 
In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, John wrote this, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Wow, okay, that's instructive. May well be the clearest statement in all the Bible as to what exactly was going on there in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. What or who is the serpent? John said that ancient serpent, the deceiver, is the devil. Satan. Clearly the serpent was the devil. Known as Satan. According to John, his desire, his goal upon entering this created order and beginning to interact with human beings is to deceive the whole world. That's his goal. If you wonder if this is accurate, our Lord taught the very same thing in an interaction He had with the Pharisees. He said it in different words. You know these words probably. John chapter 8 and verse 44, what did Jesus say? You are of your father the devil, speaking to these false teachers. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Okay, your father has desires, he has goals, he has plans, and you have the same plans he does. Well, what are those plans? He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. According to King Jesus, the devil was around and active from the beginning. It's plain there. Uh, John actually went on to state that very plainly in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, he said this, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Why? For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. John likes that phrase, the beginning. You find that in his writing. He keeps pointing back to, to what we're studying in Genesis and saying, hey, hey, that's where it started. This is, and it's just continued. And our Lord's divine assessment of the devil and his activity in, there in John chapter 8 was that his goal, the devil's goal, has always been to lie, to deceive, and to murder. That's been his goal. It's been his plan. He's a destroyer. He's a deceiver. And friends, the apostle Peter actually warned believers in the New Testament that this continues to be the goal of the devil's activity in the world to this day. Lest you think this is not something you and I need to be aware of or concerned about. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5 when instructing elders and members of the church. He warned them, warned us like this. Be sober minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This has been his purpose from the beginning. This continues to be his purpose even now. Now friends, as you think about this, the fact that there is a very real enemy of the souls of God's creatures. A question inevitably rises in the discussion, just a practical one when we consider Genesis. So, so when did Satan fall? 
If the end of chapter 1 tells us everything God made was very good, and now Satan has fallen, when did he fall? And nowhere does the Scripture answer that question specifically, very clearly. But we can deduce from looking at the text that what we have, we know that this fall took place sometime between 131, where everything was very good, and 3-1, when we're told that the serpent was crafty and he came tempting We know it was somewhere between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 3. In fact, John MacArthur summing up the the first verse of our passage, just trying to put together what we know of Satan and what was going on here, he, he just wrote this helpful sentence. He said, Satan, being a fallen archangel, that's a supernatural spirit, had possessed the body of a snake in its pre fall form. This is what seems to be going on here. What I find astounding in watching this exchange is that Eve doesn't seem shocked that a snake is talking to her. She just carries on a conversation with it. Even more shocking, Adam let it happen. More troubling, he was right there with her and let it happen. There's a lot to be gleaned from this text. We talked about the serpent, but I want to consider secondly, and we'll take the bulk of our time considering some scriptures concerning his tactics. If the serpent is the devil, he's the deceiver, he's the destroyer, then what do we need to know about how he works and what he does? Well, as we move into this next point, I think it's important for us to remember that the exchange that we witness here in chapter 3 between the serpent and Eve was preceded by the plain statement of the Word and the will of God in the previous chapter. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, God had said this to man. It tells us that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, very plain words, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Is this somehow ambiguous? Unclear? We're not really sure what he meant, right? This is open to interpretation. No. He said what he meant. He meant what he said, and he said it clearly. Adam knew the will of God. He had the word of God. God's word to man was clear. Don't eat from that tree. For the day you do, you'll surely die. Friends, it's worth noting the fact, though, that these words were spoken to man, the man alone, Adam alone. The passage tells us that the next thing God did after giving this command was to begin providing for him the woman. This is verse 17 of chapter 2. Verse 18 reads like this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So God had given the command, his word to the husband, to Adam. And presumably, God left Adam with the responsibility of passing this command along to his wife and guarding her from the consequence of certain death for disobedience to it. So God's provided His Word, and He's provided a protector. Friends, all of this will prove rather significant as we keep reading our text. 
I want you to watch closely and, and, and observe how the text unfolds that we're looking at in chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. There's pause right here. We've Considered this in the past, but I want to make sure that we, we note something. Let me just ask you a question. Did Eve quote God accurately? Had God said, you may not touch the tree? No, he had not. I mean, we just read the words of God in the previous chapter, chapter 2. Verses 15 to 17, the words were very plain. Not once did he tell Adam not to touch the tree. In fact, he actually gave Adam the responsibility of tending and keeping the garden. You can't really tend and keep without touching. The command was don't eat. The commentators have suggested that this may have been an addition made by Adam intending to protect his wife when he communicated God's words to her. It may have been the kind of thing that you and I know the tendency of our children to go a little further than what we, what we set for them as boundaries, and so we just pull the boundaries back a little bit to make sure they don't go where we don't want them to go. Adam may have done something very simple. Hey, God said don't eat it. I'm going to tell you, don't even touch it. Don't even touch it. Leave that to me. Don't touch it. I don't want you near it. Maybe he was attempting to be a protector. We don't know. We only can surmise. And many have guessed that that's what he was doing. He, he gave those words to her. He told her not to touch it. We don't know for sure. But friends, my question would be this. If that was truly Adam's heart, that he wanted to protect his wife, then where was he while the serpent approached her and conversed with her and deceived her? If he really wanted to protect his wife, why did he twist the words of God himself rather than step up and guide with the word and guard her soul? Sadly, as we'll see in verse 6, that our text actually tells us, and it is astounding to read, that he was right there with her when she ate. I've heard theories that Adam was off tending the garden somewhere. The language of the text tells us she ate... And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. What a horrifying thought. Let's keep reading. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that, you, uh, that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. My friends, follow this. 
Though the Creator God had revealed Himself and His will to man as the ultimate and final authority, the strategy of the deceiver was to subvert the ways God's creatures thought and submitted to the revealed Word of God. He wanted to twist the way they thought about the words of God. He wanted to twist the way that they responded to the words of God. He he wanted to change the way they, they submitted to the words of God. In fact, the text is clear that Satan started by just questioning the word, right? Verse number one of the text, what did it say? Did God actually say... Did he actually say, you shall not eat of all the tree of the garden, right? Didn't didn't he say, let's let's twist this, let's let's, let's play games with his words. He said you can eat of all the trees, right? Quickly his exchange with Eve went from questioning to flatly denying the word. And not only denying the word, but attacking the character of the one who spoke it. Verses 4 and 5, what did he say? But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Flat denial. And then he questions the character of God. For he knows, he knows that you're just going to become like him. He's jealous. He's selfish. He's withholding. He's not generous. He doesn't want you to have what you want. Friends, the serpent suggested that God did not want His creatures to be like Him. That's absurd. That's absurd. Do you remember what God has already told us about His creation of His creatures? The Scriptures already told us that God had made man like Himself. Genesis 1 was plain. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them, and he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Wait a second. I've got a question. Does this sound like a jealous, stingy, self-protective, withholding God to you? This God who made man in his image and wanted him to have dominion, made him his own representative in the world, was very kind to him in his creation. We saw this before. The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was there in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The text goes on to say, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One tree you may not eat. Does this sound like a heartless, cold-hearted, stingy, self-defensive God to you? I'm going to ask that question again because nobody's responding. Does he sound stingy to you? And yet, we still believe the lie, don't we? We go right there. 
He won't let me have what I want. He won't let me do as I please. He won't let me have the life that I dreamed. He won't give me what I demand. Oh, Satan was crafty. He knew what heartstrings to pluck. Because we still hear that hiss in our ears and we believe the lie too. Remember what we just said. The strategy of the deceiver was to subvert the way God's creatures thought about and submitted to the revealed word of God. God spoke and they did not submit to his word. As I just made clear, that has continued to be one of Satan's main tactics ever since. Just change the way they think about the word. Just get them to deny the word and question the word and doubt the word. Not submit to it. Not uphold it. Not believe it. This is the plan of the enemy. Listen to the way that the New Testament talks about the ongoing works of the wicked one, friends. Just just think with me for a minute. Remember Christ's own word to the Pharisees. He made it very plain there in John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth. Why? There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks right out of his own character. Because he is a liar and the father of lies. There's a reason why Jesus himself, after hearing Peter's proclamation that God had given to him of who he was, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter, this doesn't come from you. This comes from my father. And moments later in the same exchange, Peter is now saying, no, Jesus, you're not going to go to the cross. You're not going to go and die. We're not going to let it happen. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get out of my way, Satan. Wow. How quickly we can go from speaking truth to doing the devil's work. When we walk from truth to error. Truth to lies. Later the Apostle Paul would right to the church at Corinth and when he did in his second letter we have recorded in the text of scripture 2 Corinthians chapter 4 he says this of the devil's tactics and even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled to those who are perishing in their case the God of this world the descriptor of Satan the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. What is Satan doing? Blinding minds so that they don't see truth. 
still doing the same work. Similarly, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians about Satan's work in the end times, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and he describes it this way, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Literally in the original language, the lie. They may believe the lie. The lie of whom? The lie of Satan. He's been saying the same thing all since the beginning. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The tactic doesn't change from the beginning to the end. It's about twisting truth and promoting error. And a resource, Pastor Dave put me on to this week, speaking about Satan's tactics, Professor Ian Duguid recently said this in an interview. It was a very interesting thought. He said, Satan is not really all that creative. He only has three strategies, persecution, seduction, and deception. Persecution, seduction, and deception. If you wonder if Dr. Duguid's assessment was right, just consider the way that Satan handled our Lord himself while he was on earth. In Matthew chapter 4, we read an interesting parallel to our text in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, God puts man, the first Adam and his wife, in a garden, a lush garden with everything that they could need. All the fruit hanging from the trees, their needs were met, they had riches, they had bounty, there was beauty, and God put them there, and the the tempter comes in that environment, and they fail the test. In Matthew chapter 4, we read this, "Then then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, the second Adam, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Oh, the devil can use the word too. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him first Adam in the bounty of the garden was tested and he failed. The second Adam in the barrenness of the wilderness in the midst of his hunger was tested and he passed the test. 
Not if he passed the test. With the word of God. Every temptation he answered, it is written. And even when Satan said, yes, and it is written, and twisted the words of God, Christ took the words of God and answered him plainly. I think it's interesting in this last temptation, Satan offers him the kingdoms of the world. Notice Jesus doesn't dispute whose kingdoms they are, right? You don't have the right to offer me that. They're not yours. No, what does the Bible tell us? Satan is currently the God of this world. And the nations will be the inheritance of Christ. It seems to be that Satan was simply saying, what do you want most of all? You, incarnate one, what would you like most of all? i got a question. What could make Jesus sweat drops of blood? How about what was coming on the cross? The agonies, spiritual mainly agonies of his suffering being made sin. If the goal is merely the nations, then Satan was saying, I'll give you what your father has promised without the cross. I'll give you what you want. What he didn't understand is what Jesus wanted more than the nations was the glory of God. And so he said, it is written. It is written. It is written. What is he saying? This is already settled. God has already spoken. It is simply mine to obey. To walk in that way. My friends, when Paul promises that there is no temptation that will take you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful to make a way of escape from temptation, you and I seem to think that God has to part the clouds and shine glory from heaven and send His angels and pick us up out of that, that, that situation miraculously. When what Paul is saying is, He has already made the way of escape. He's spoken. Just do it. Just obey. Christ Himself set that example for us. Temptation came and He simply said, Thus says the Lord. The Word is the answer to the tactics of the enemy. I find it astounding, friends, that we think about this, that the Spirit of God would lead the Son of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy of God. But He did so because it was necessary for Jesus, the second Adam, to meet the tempter and overcome him. The devil's tactics were the same for Jesus that they were for those in the garden he questioned the truth. He twisted the words of God. He offered his prey something that he thought they wanted. And each time the tempter came to Jesus, King Jesus spoke the truth of God's word just as God had originally intended it. No spin, 
No twist, no fudging. It is written. And friends, the truth is always the answer to the enemy's deception. But what did Satan do in the life of Jesus when he did not defeat him in the wilderness? I want you to consider toward the end of Jesus' ministry what the Bible tells us about an exchange Jesus had with his disciples on the night before the cross. In John chapter 13 and verse 21, we read this, And after these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. That's, that's astounding to me. Judas didn't stand out. You would think that the way that we read the story and we know what's going to happen, that Judas was always over in the corner kind of wringing his hands going, I can't wait for the chance to do something bad. You would think that on the night Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, they all would have gone, it's Judas, we know. We, this guy's been kind of, kind of shady the whole time, right? No, they look around and go, we don't have any idea who he's talking about. Does that give you reason to pause like it gives me reason to pause? Not even the disciples had a clue Judas was going to do this in the next hour. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, now hold on. Is that not clear? What was the answer? What was the question? Tell us who it is. What is the answer? I'm going to dip some bread and hand it to the guy I'm talking about. He dips it. He hands it to Judas. Let's keep reading. Then after he had taken the morsel, what happened? Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or, or, or that he should go give something to the poor. They're still giving Judas the benefit of the doubt, and Jesus has just said, the guy I dipped the bread and give it to him, he's the guy. And they're all going, it can't be Judas. And Satan's in him. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Let's not forget, even Peter has done the work of Satan already. And now Judas is. Remember what we saw earlier, Satan's goal has always been to lie and deceive and to murder. And when he could not defeat Christ with deception or seduction in the wilderness, he took a very active role facilitating his crucifixion. His persecution. I think do-good is right. Satan's not all that creative. He persecutes. He seduces. He deceives. And he's still doing it. 
friends, as we begin bringing this sermon to a close, I think it's vital for us to remember the fact that the same enemy who has opposed God's plan from the beginning and who sought to destroy the Son of God is still actively seeking to destroy God's people here on earth. I think some of us very ill-advisedly have convinced ourselves that the world's kind of neutral Like it's even kind of slanted toward the good because the world tells us, right, everybody's good. Even the professing believers of our day tend to want to give the benefit of the doubt, right? And, and there really shouldn't be any doubt. The Scriptures are clear, but they still have this, this wondering and they tend to think that the earth is kind of neutral or, or maybe it's slanted toward the good and, and, and really it's, it's not that hard. It's not that bad. Oh, we see bad, but... If we could just fix up a few things, I mean, how else do you explain the slide towards socialism in our day? If we could just fix the environment, we'd fix the people. They're all good, we just got to change the environment, it'll all fix it. Read your Bible. Just follow this, friends. The Apostle Paul was extremely concerned that the Christians of his day would be deceived and led astray from Christ like Eve had been deceived? In fact, he says it plainly, 2 Corinthians 11 and 3, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And he wasn't writing to the world. He was writing to a church. He says, I am concerned about you. That you're going to be deceived like Eve and you're going to abandon Jesus. Oh, I would never. You just read about Judas. I would never. I could never. And why would Paul say such a thing? That you're going to be deceived and you're going to abandon him. Peter warned of this same danger and he charged believers to stand firm in the faith rather than being led astray by the devil. We saw that earlier. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, like like a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. He's hungry and he's looking for the weak ones. He's looking for the stragglers. He's looking for the ones he can grab and he can make a meal of. So what do you do? Resist him. How? Firm in your faith. Dig into the Word. Press into His people. Be on guard. And resist the evil one. There is an enemy coming for you. Live accordingly. In his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul actually wrote a whole paragraph instructing believers in how to arm themselves and how to stand their ground against the enemy of their souls. Do you remember these words? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Wow, how much time do the Christians of our day spend arming themselves? Because they actually believe there's a battle going on. And not a battle with a boss so you can get to your weekend. 
but a battle with an enemy of your soul who wants to devour you and deceive you so that you abandon Jesus. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, because that's true, your battle is not with human beings, but with spiritual powers, evil ones that want to destroy you. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying At all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert, with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. My friends, I would suggest that Paul was concerned that the church would just grow kind of sleepy. kind of lackadaisical. What we do, we do if we get to it, and if we don't, no big deal. It's not like we're in a war or something. It's not like our lives and our souls and our children are at stake. No, no, we just just work our jobs and we enjoy our weekends and we take our trips and we have our fun and we eat all that we can eat and we do whatever we want to do and we just like the good old American dream. Don't tell me I'm at war. I didn't. God did. There is an enemy trying to destroy you and your family and the church and rob our God of His glory. And we yawn and change the channel. And we yawn and turn on the next game. And we yawn and say, pass the sweet tea, right? I mean, we we just go on like it's no big deal. And when we read our Bibles, we've only gotten to the beginning of chapter 3 of the first book. And we're told what the actual state of the created order now is. No wonder the word is full of warnings to us. Telling us this life is actually warfare. And not warfare with people. But a war for souls against spiritual wickedness, powers in high places. We use the language of war and we run the risk of making it sound like we're not sure who's going to win. 
May I remind you of what John told us plainly that he might breathe confidence into us. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We don't live fearfully. We do live on alert. There's a big difference. You see, friends, as we bring this message to a close, I want to call each of us to respond to the truths that we've been considering with trust and with obedience. With trust and with obedience. I want to call us to sober-minded watchfulness. I want to call us to firm, faith-filled resistance. I want to call us to arm ourselves with the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit that we might stand and stand firm. Friends, I want to call us to trust that our God is greater than our enemy and that He wins the battles. He fights. By God's grace, then, let's hear the warning. And let's take it to heart and let's respond in faith. And let's apply it all practically to our lives that by His grace we might be guarded and He might be glorified. For there is an enemy, but he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. We read our Bibles, we are struck with the seriousness of what's here, that we're not just out for a picnic, we actually are on a battleground. And while we spend so much time figuring out how to be as comfortable as we can possibly be, you have told us to arm ourselves because souls are at stake. To guard our hearts that we ourselves might not be deceived and led astray. So, Father, I pray that you would take the truth of your word this morning and open our eyes and set us on to watchfulness, preparedness, being equipped with the word so that when error comes, we can refute it with what the Lord has actually said and not be so wishy-washy, so uncertain, so susceptible to deception. Father, I pray that you would do your work in us and may we look to our Savior and Lord and honor Him in our response to the truth. There is an enemy, but our God is greater. And we thank you for these truths, for it's in Christ's name that we pray.